Hello, and welcome to the R Resources Podcast. I'm your host, Kalen Brand. Thanks for listening today. So today we have a very special episode. It's uh, with Mr. Adam Hawkins, who is with Global External Relations, which does public relations as, as well as um, works with different governments and regulatory agencies in order to ensure that mining operations uh, can operate, that they have their social license to operate, as well as that they're operating within the, the legal and structural bounds of whatever jurisdiction they're within. Um, so, so Adam's a very interesting guy. Uh, you'll hear during the podcast, he is not afraid to express his opinions, which I, I particularly love. It makes the podcast interesting. It makes it funny. You hear me laughing uh, quite a few times throughout the podcast simply because, uh, you know, I, I'm in an academic setting and I'm not used to hearing such provocative statements and, and found them quite entertaining. Um, so, and I, and I hope that you do too. I, I truly hope that you find his, his statements, his opinions as entertaining, but also as thoughtful as I did, because uh, being an engineer, being a scientist, I don't have a, a strong understanding of mining policy and how we, we have policies to govern our natural resources, how they're used and how the companies that are extracting them uh, work with communities. But um, through this interview, I was able to learn a lot more about how public policy actually works within the mineral resource space. Um, and it's something that I think that is it's, it's obviously incredibly important to everything that we do as mineral resource experts, uh, but it's not something that we very often get the opportunity to be exposed to. So I found this conversation particularly useful for all of our uh, mineral resource experts that are out and about in, a wor- in the world. Um, and then additionally for just the general public, I hope that this conversation was interesting by providing you an insight of how the ins and outs of industry and government work. I mean, Adam has had the opportunity to work hand in hand with governments around the globe. And so it's a unique opportunity to understand really how industry can uh, sway policymakers and sway regulatory agencies. During the interview, as we go through a variety of topics, um, but one one topic that Adam touches on quite heavily and, and brings up is uh, the cactus mine, which is an experiment in, in my mind of what can happen when we are more creative with our policy and, and with the regulations that we that we use. Uh, the cactus mine, to me, is a good example of, of what can happen when people work together and and come to a compromise, come to the negotiation table. So the cactus mine, it's it's in the middle of Arizona. Uh, it was a, a mine that stopped mining back in the 1970s. And there was some major liabilities related to an old tailings facility that were nearby that prevented any companies from, from coming to buy the land from restarting the mine. Yeah, Adam and his team were able to sit down, uh, talk with environmental agencies, talk with the state, and be able to understand what they needed to do to turn this quasi-abandoned mine back into something that is providing value for the local community, and as well as supplying a critical resource needed for the electrification of our world. So with that said, I do hope that you enjoy today's podcast. I hope that you find it as interesting as I did. And one quick note before jumping on to the actual conversation is that I I apologize. I do truly apologize for the background noise in the podcast. We are recording this live at Minds for Limitless Minds, which was hosted by 
the brand new School of Money and Mineral Resources at the University of Arizona. Uh, it's a it's a project that I have probably been working with for several years now, um, and this event marked our launch of of the new school. And so it was a, a great opportunity to sit down, speak with some of these really notable thinkers in the mining space like Adam. Uh, so that said, it is a little bit noisy in the background. You're hearing all the people enjoying the event. Um, and so I apologize for that. But I do hope that you're able to still gather something valuable from this conversation that uh, you are able to learn something new. Uh, so on with the episode. So, Adam, uh, you're with Global External Relations. Cool. And before we really jump into it, uh, what would you describe your, your main job function being? I help mining companies and people who finance them understand and uh, address social, political, reputational, uh, regulatory risk. And if they choose to proceed, we put in good, long-lasting mitigation strategies to build uh, lasting partnerships with those communities. So obviously that's an incredibly important part of having a social license and being able to operate sustainably. Um, so as as we dive into this and as we go into all the details, uh, the, the first main topic I wanted to discuss today, which is going to be mining from the government's perspective. So. You know, when looking at the sustainability of mining, it's be considering social, environmental, and the governments. Um, so on on the podcast, we've talked about environmental. We've talked a little bit about social, um, but we haven't done much about the governance perspective. Uh, so to begin, I, I would like to discuss. You know, why do governments care about mining? Well, for starters, there's a lot at stake, and if things go terribly wrong, it's the government that usually ends up having to uh, having to deal with the problem. So they want to make sure, first and foremost, uh, the ones that are that are operating as they should, that the folks who are coming in and proposing to develop and expand, reactivate new mining operations, um, really do have their heads wrapped around what are the long term, what is the you know from the concept stage, what is closure going to look like, and getting it back there. But I'd like to kind of build a little bit on that because mining companies and the, the the, the really, really seasoned ones don't just look at what the government requires and don't just use that as, you know, this is where our obligation ends. They're looking beyond that and they're asking the question, do they, are, there, are there things beyond the regulatory requirements that we need to be able to address long term? Because you know, you're entering into a mining operation, you're entering into a long social contract, a marriage with your host communities. So when you say a, a long-term social contract, I mean, to me, that's that's contradictory to, to what I interpret mining as, which is, in my mind, I see it as a short-term in-and-out ordeal. Like, if, if we want mining to have a minimal environmental impact as possible, it's, I guess it's, it's kind of a, a catch-22 that, you know, while we're operating, we're inevitably going to have an impact. Uh, but how do we minimize that so as soon as we leave, the community goes back to being what it was. Uh, and so, I guess, 
how how do those two topics kind of intermix, or, or do they intermix? <laughs> so I'm gonna try and carve this up bit by bit. So let's let's start with um, when we're when we're thinking about going into communities, we have to think about the long term economic viability. Um, mining is, is an incredible, incredible force for economic development, for the creation, not the not the generation, not the redistribution, the creation of wealth. And that extends out across where our host communities are, but it's it's a wasting resource, it's funny. So you have to plan for where do these influxes of capital go and how do you make sure that this is the um, this is kind of the seeds that can help to um, grow other portions of the economy. So when you do get to the era of you know, the end of the resource, you have other things that have started from it. Um, the, the, the second end of it is, is this all kind of starts with mining companies figuring out where the quality of life drivers are in our communities, and those vary from place to place. It's dramatically different from, from mine to mine in places that I operate in the Every continent except for Antarctica. Every community is unique. Every community has unique needs. Every community has unique things that go to quality of life. We have to find ways to get after that, to improve things in ways that they actually have. So, thanks for reminding that. But I, I, I want to go back to the government's perspective a little bit on this. Uh, so, when looking at government regulation, it's it's the obligation of the mining company, as you just said, to improve and understand the, the quality of life that the community wants. What role does government have to play in that type of relationship? Okay, so I've been in public policy longer than I've been in mining. And I've been in mining a long time, so I'm going to date myself here a little bit. But there's two types of public policy. Yeah. There's reactive and proactive. And there's good and bad, there's column A and column B on both sides of those things. So good operations, operations that are um, keeping themselves ahead of where things are, are, are headed can sometimes get out in front of GAB proactive and certainly GAB reactive public policy. But a lot of our a lot of our environmental rules, a lot of our safety rules, a, a lot of the rules that govern our business came out of problems. And they came from things that, 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 that were really challenging. Now, that being said, there are so many laws and regulations on the books that frustrate just, I mean, they drive me to the point of an amnesty. Because you don't like, you don't see the public benefit to all of it. So I look at like, I look at all this stuff that we, all these hoops we have to jump through on federal nexus projects and all these studies and all this engagement that has to happen. And I ask myself, how much of this is really meaningful? How much of this is really protecting the public? How much of this is really informing the public? How much of this the public is actually reading? Or is this just a, for lack of a better way of saying, a, a full employment act for lawyers and yeah. consultants? It's, it's, fr it's frustrating when you see that in action. So obviously, I mean, you know, there's a lot of talk right now. The Biden administration's working through this interagency working group on mining reform. And there's a lot of people out there that are saying, yeah, we need to change this, we need to change this, we need to change this. And some of it does come out of the frustration that they feel like there isn't meaningful engagement or there isn't meaningful tribal consultation or meaningful mitigation. Um, there's also a lot of things on the other side of it, but I think the mining industry would like to see reformed. And the top of that list 
the number one thing on the policy side is the length of time people have to spend in litigation. That's the number one factor of, of, of why it is hard to drive foreign direct investment into mining projects in this country. So, so you touch on many things there, and I, I want to come back to, I want to spend the, probably the second half of this talking about how we can improve the system. Um, so it's always, always looking to be proactive here. Um, but to start it off, I, I want to go back to what you started talking about, which was kind of the, the problems that have arisen that have led to some of these laws and regulations. Um, so I think it would be helpful for, for you to expand on perhaps an example of, of one of these previous problems and the regulations that came out of that. And, and perhaps also if you could expand on if that regulation was, was fit too precisely to that specific problem in, in terms of the, the scalability of some of these regulations. Well, let's start with um, CERCLA came out of a growing problem, not just with, in the mining industry, but just in the industrial community, about sites that had a much, much higher exposure for the public, for the taxpayer, long term, than what was coming out of it. And a lot of sites where the taxpayer is being left holding the bank. So, comprehensive financial assurance is a mechanism of making sure that we don't end up holding the bag. Now, um, since the passage of CERCLA, and I'm not saying CERCLA is perfect, but you haven't had a single of mines that have been created under that regulatory framework, started, activated in the liquor framework, you've not had a single abandoned mine site. All the AMLs, there's hundreds of thousands of them across the country, all predate CERCLA. Now, if you want to get onto the other side of public policy, and this is, I'm going to get on my soapbox here, so you can tell me I'm going to get off. Um, but when you talk about those hundreds of thousands of, of, of orphan sites across this country, that is plain and simple a public policy created problem. There is a mechanism to be able to address them, there's a mechanism to be able to get after them, and all we need is Congress to say, we've had enough, we're done with this, and we're willing to give responsible operators security from the legacy liability. So that's basically right now for all those AMLs, the legacy liability exposure. If any responsible operator touches those sites, they're on the hook for that. And, and what what do you mean by on the hook? So natural resource damages, environmental damages have lasting health impacts, environmental impacts. There's a whole bunch of different things, but it's basically exposure to lawsuits. Okay. All right. So you carve out legacy liability. You open up hundreds of thousands of brownfield sites to opportunities to mine, to opportunities to write an environmental wrong, to be able to demonstrate that we can solve complex problems and address our, our, our supply chain needs. My, my job here is always to be skeptical. Um, so, please, if you're if you're approaching these brownfield sites as, as a government, you're right. There is a lot of liability. There's a lot of issues with these, and there's the opportunity for environmental hazards, health hazards. And I guess why why should the government be trusting of mining companies to to responsibly take care of, of these materials? 
That's a good question, and the answer to the answer to the future side of things, of like what is a project and look like in closure, is that these every new site, whether you're reactivating a new site on a brownfield site or you're breaking brand new ground on a greenfield site, you have to bond for the full closure of that property. So even if the company just goes away, things happen, market forces happen, bad management decisions, you have a financial instrument in place that will cover. The closure of that should that company go go away. Um, the one thing that you can't do under the present configuration is address the historic. But these are, if you address that historic liability, you give the government the ability to carve that out to not put somebody on the hook for something of problems they did not create themselves, but allow them the opportunity to be able to produce minerals at a brownfield site, solve safety problems, solve environmental problems. It's, it's profound. And so I, I, to the skeptics out there, I, I, was, I, was, I was challenged by a skeptic in the Environmental Protection Agency in Washington because about proof to us that comprehensive abandoned mine and AML Good Samaritan reforms work. And um, we sat down with our State Department of Environment Equality uh, here in Arizona, and we said, hold our beer. And we found, we, we started looking at a whole bunch of different sites that fit within the current regulatory framework, and came up with really zeroing in on one that, that made sense for a variety of reasons, and that today is the cactus one. So, great lead in there. <laughs> But so I, w I want you to expand on the cactus mine and, and particularly the process that got you to where you are today. Um, but before diving into that, I, I did want to ask, does this type of legacy issue happen in other industries that, that you've worked in or interacted with in the public policy space? There's public policy problems in every industry. Yes. Uh, yeah. So I haven't been in very many industries. I've been in the public policy industry. I had a brief uh, uh, four-year uh, career in the wine and spirits wholesale distribution side of things, which has a whole different set of public policy challenges. Anybody who's operated in what's called a three-tier state, or a state that requires a producer, a wholesaler, and, and a retail kind of purchase, can tell you that it's public It's public <laughs> policy pandemonium. And it was created, I, I don't think, out of public safety, but that's all. I, I'm going to save that for when the liquor people want to come up on stage and talk about it. But the, on, on the mining side of things, there are so many things that we bump into, and one of the one of the things I hear from almost serially from mining opponents is the industry is not regulated. Where and um, the other one I hear is the 1872 mining law is old. And, and so I'm going to knock those down one by one. First is the mining industry. Is subject to so many different regulations that I couldn't. If I just went and read the list, we'd time out on this podcast. Okay. The second part is the 1872 Mine Act has been improved 50 different times, and it's subject to all of the different companion legislations like the Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act, Federal Lands Management Protected Protection Act, FLIPMA. Rickra, Rifra, there's so many different things that like come into that come into play that influence the the, the process. So it's it's there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Okay. So thanks for diverging on that real quick. Uh, but back back to the cactus mine. Uh, so 
So the Cactus Mine, it was a abandoned mine that operated in the seventies, I, I believe, um, when it was abandoned. Um, but so you you and your your group focused in on this mine and decided that you're going to restart it um, and take on the liability of, of it being an abandoned mine. Um, so starting from the beginning, what was kind of what was the climate like when you started investigating the opportunity of, of reopening the site? So I want to start with a little bit of a correction. Um, Cactus is not an, an abandoned mine oh. at the purest definition. What it was was it was a site that was um, put into an environmental custodial trust. It. So it was under maintenance, care yeah. and maintenance, but not. It wasn't a true a true AML is something without like any yeah. custody yeah. at all. But true AMLs are subject to a whole different set of statutes and things that we have to deal with and realities that keep a lot of people from, from getting into them. So Cactus um, was in 2017, 2018 and 2019, when we first started evaluating it, just sitting dormant, so it really wasn't producing anything. There have been a number of people who kicked the tires on it. So back in the day, in the 1970s... And, and can you tell us where it is and what it is real quick? Yeah, yeah. Sure. So, uh, for those who aren't familiar, Cactus is just west of Casa Grande, which sits right between Phoenix and Tucson, for people who are listening and are familiar with Arizona. Um, it was mined by Sarco between 1974 and 1984. Oh, okay. It was closed due to commodity prices, not due to the deposit being mined out. But um, it, it, it was included in Sarco's bankruptcy in the um, uh, 2010s, let's we'll say. So, <laughs> Um, yeah, this property, which was sitting there under care of maintenance, back in the day, they were mining, and they were mining that project, they knew exactly what to do with sulfites, they didn't know what to do with oxides, and you had oxides and sulfites coming out of the, um, there was a pit in some underground workings there itself, so they, they put the oxides in a stock pot, and it was designed to the standards of the day, which are not the standards of today, so today, if you wanted to design that facility, it would have to be lined. Yeah, yeah. Um, that facility is unlined. So we started that project with the idea of let's take the stockpile on an unlined facility, move it to a lined facility, keep bleach, hit, solvent, extraction, electric, and yep, produce yep. finished copper from this site. So started as kind of a mini project. And the people who understand mining finance know that they're, unless you've got something that's big, not a lot of companies yeah. want to touch it. Yeah. They're going to put a lot of money into it. But um, the team that we've got on this project that has expanded over time and started with uh, just a few folks who wanted to kind of geek out on public policy and geology. And today it's a $160 million market cap company publicly traded in Canada and on track to be the fourth largest independent producer of copper in North America. Yeah. So, so you started off by basically leaching the oxides that, that were left over, um, but now you're far beyond that. Uh, and so, I guess two two parts to this question. Um, the first part being, where are you currently within the the regulation process? Are you feasibility, pre-feasibility, um, all of that? And then secondly, I mean, you talked about this starting in 2017, so that's five years ago. Uh, and you've made more ground than a lot of mining companies have been able to do in the past 25 years, much, much less than a decade. So how have you navigated the current regulatory schemes in order to streamline the process? 
So I'm going to start with the regulatory streamlining, and I'm going to tell you in the mining industry in the United States, the three most beautiful words in the English language are no federal nexus. I swear I'm going to get a hat maybe with that phrase out so, so, so of uh, So with no federal nexus means we don't have a legal trigger. We're not going to deal with the 10 years of EIS environmental impact yes. statement level yes. headaches. We're not going to have the litigation. So the permitting for this project is state and county. So right now in terms of what's left on it, um, we've filed, we have an industrial air quality permit, which is um, run by Pinal County. And then we have the um, MLRP, which is um, run by the State Mine Inspector's Office. And that's basically what stands between us and producing. And really, we, we, we probably would have been, we probably would have flipped the switch on this project in 2023, except we kept finding more oil. And this is the trouble. Like, so we keep going out trying to do condemnation drilling because, you know, we, we know that there's going to be at some point in time this deposit like we're, we're going to max out on what it is but yeah. we keep finding more oil and not only are we finding more oil but we're finding more opportunity so this the, the, the non-technical term for this site in, in my career is, is a unicorn so it's a no federal nexus private land project you already have utility infrastructure there yeah. you have supportive community came with water rights so we already have the we already have the length of the facilities, operational water footprint secured from day one. Wow! And uh, I'm, I'm pleased to say that we're, we're we're really getting creative with that. So we we've actually been working with the city of Casa Grande. We're gonna take their effort. We're gonna buy effluent from them, treat it, use it for a good chunk of our operational water, and give them our water rights. So we're actually doing like in, in the process. Like, how many times can you be able to say that we're doing better for the water conditions of the area by, by coming in a mine? Yeah. yeah. It's, it's, it's huge. And those are just a few of the, like, the opportunities that we find. Here. We're creating a shed berm. So we're going to put up a 100-foot berm on the north and east side of the property. Tallest site operation will be 80 feet. We're hoping, you know, and it'll be contoured and vegetated in a way that just look like a, you know, just look like a hill, regular uh, uh, geological feature, natural geological feature. It's going to tie in with the city's bike trails, hiking trails. Like, we just, there are just so many, this, this is like a layer cake. It just keeps getting sweeter than what we do. So, so you're painting a very rosy picture. <laughs> and, and, and rightly so. But I, I do want to ask you, what was the liability when we were first coming into this? Why didn't other companies touch it? Why was it just sitting in the desert for the past three to four decades? So you have a you have legacy liability associated with the Tailand facility there, which the uh, state and um, State Department of Environmental Quality and the Environmental Protection Agency were able to use mechanisms called. Um, Bonafide per prospective purchaser agreements would be a PPAs, and then on the state level, it's called a PPA, prospective purchaser agreement, which basically just says state was on the hook before, state stays on the hook. So um, that was a game changer in terms of the economics of it, because when you're calculating the 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 the, the, the MPVGO, net present value growth opportunity for a mining site, you have to take into account everything that we're going to go through so what it's going to take to be able to your capital expenditures to be able to get it into operation what's your potential return given commodity rates yeah um all of those different factors when you have that legacy liability in place here you know, it just wasn't it just didn't make sense for a lot of people now some folks have kicked the tires on it 
Um, what really made the difference was bringing the right team and getting people of experience who knew what they were doing, who also knew how to um, get people excited in the capital market side. Yeah. So a lot of people in Toronto, which is where Toronto and Vancouver, yeah. most of the mining capital cycles do. They, they, they look at the amount of trouble you have to go through to to open a new mine in the United States. And, and, and so the, the over-under on it is, is, is not always the most compelling story for those of us here in Arizona. So my hope is, if nothing else, when, when, when you kind of look at this, is to be able to demonstrate that, yes, you can. Yes, you can bring it across. And, um, uh, if you look at what... Uh, and, uh, well, you're going to start staring at me when I say this, but... When you look at what Hudbay is doing right now with Copper World, they've engineered a no federal nexus land configuration project. That is, is, is just a brilliant way to be able to, 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 to come out this, but more and more people are looking at that. I want to move a, a little bit beyond Texas Mine. I guess, I guess closer towards the implications of Texas Mine. Um, and the, the first part of this, and what you just ended on, going beyond kind of the federal nexus to get permitted in the accelerated streamlined permitting process of that enables. I guess, in, in your opinion, uh, would you say that the a decentralization of some of these uh, regulatory acts would be beneficial to the mining uh, community and, and the ability for U.S. mining to be more vitalized? I don't know if I would call it decentralization. Um, I think streamlining... So the number one thing you've got to address before you can really get anywhere is we, we, the United States, and I say this, I'm, I'm a proud American, but I've been all over Canada, we have a lawyer problem in this country, right? We, we really do need meaningful tort reform, because if, if you look at, like, you know, how does Canada do it? How does Australia do it? Yeah. How does, how, how does Chile do it? These are countries that have good regulatory systems. They have good kind of entitlement, like tenure process systems. Um, and you know, there's not to say that they're not without their own complexity, but yeah. what they don't have is they don't have people staring down decades and decades of litigation on the other side of projects. And that absolutely is 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 a, is, is a deal killer. The second thing. So if you, if you want to, you want to ask what, if I could change a couple of things. Yep, that's, industry, that's exactly okay. where I was going. So, <laughs> I'm talking about. Yeah. So let's start with. I'd like to limit the number of, of environment, equal access to justice or EJ applications entities can make within a calendar year. I think that will that will definitely. And I know any of them listening to this, that it's going like, to be smoke coming out of the ears. Can you explain a little bit about so, what that is? So, yeah. Equal Access to Justice Act was a very well-intentioned piece of legislation that was primarily put on the books to help folks with um, civil rights-related issues and covering their legal expenses and suing the, the federal government. So it's very well-intended. Environmental groups use this as a method to basically troll the National Register, the schedule of proposed actions when you look on the Forest Service side, the federal lawsuits, and everything with a just a Chinese menu of like all the different things that you can you can litigate mining projects on. Then on the other side of it, whether they win or lose, they send the taxpayer away. Yeah. Right. Mining companies do not have the right to access EJR, and I don't think that they would, even if they were given the right to. But serial opponents, serial litigants, use this over and over and over again. 
and, and it just adds layers of different complexity to, to it. Right. Second thing is we have a completely just bonkers system in this country for entitling on federal lands. Okay. And so it used to be the era of 1872 Mining Act and kind of leading up to the 1990s, you had a system to be able for self-initiation for miners to go out and identify new discoveries. Yeah. And I speak to you as I'm probably one of the few public policy guys who sit up here who's actually hit his own stakes into the ground. I've actually staked claims myself. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So I can tell you the system that you have to go through to, to get there. It's tenuous. And, and there's no way, up into the 90s, you could patent claims. Yeah. So yep. you had a process to be able to discover, to true up, and to be able to kind of move it. Now, I, I'm not saying we should just lift the moratorium on claims because I think that would have some other implications to it as yep. well. But we have to effectively address the system. And it has to, it has to come down in a, in a, in a meaningful way. Um, I, 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 I wish there was an easy solve to it, and I wish we could get agreement in the mining industry. I will tell you, I've been on the American Exploration and Mining Association Board of Directors for more than a decade. We have been talking about mining reform since I, I first sat at that table as the youngest person at the table. Right? We're still talking about it, and not everyone agrees. And then it, you, you add to the mix, you have very different opinions between the hard rock mining industry and coal. Yeah. In terms of how that would be undertaken. So I don't know where we're gonna get. I don't know what that, um, that moment of self-reflection where we finally look in the mirror and say, you know, it, it, it's an abomination that we have minerals in this country and minerals in neighboring countries that don't have the, 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 the carbon footprint of, of having to transport yep. things long distances. They don't have the environmental impacts. We have this stuff like, right here, and we're not accessing it because of bogus reasons. So when, like, the, one of the things that just, we're going to talk about smoke coming out of the years. <laughs> China, as a country, produces more CO2 every year than the entire Western Hemisphere combined. And we, as a country, are okay with that. Yeah. We're okay with that because every single time we say no to something here, say not my backyard, not my backyard, not my backyard, or it goes into somebody else's backyard. And that comes with climate implications. It comes with, we, we have one planet, one planet here. And that's not even getting into the social implications of using prison and slave labor and child labor, which happen in, in jurisdictions when, when, when you push this off. All right. <laughs> So, I, I think though that you're touching on a very good point, which is that with an increase of some of these regulations, it's it's not it's not truly addressing a problem. It's kicking the can down the road. Uh, and so, I think on on a final note, I, I want to ask you know if if you could have one or two wishes of, of how we could improve the current system. Uh, what would you recommend? How how can we kind of balance the we want to have our pristine environment, have a good social license, and, and be able to build a, a strong community uh, while doing mining, which is inevitably going to have some negative implications. So I'm going to start with I always try to go after the easiest stuff first. Yeah, yeah, low hanging fruit. Yeah, Operation Low Hanging Fruit. Abandoned mine land reforms. It's the easiest thing. 
they're, um, I would call them uh, level-headed uh, environmental NGOs that see the benefit of it. There are other industries that see the benefit of it. There are public policy makers on both sides of the aisle that see the benefit of it. So that's number one. But, um, if you really want to change, you really want to change the dynamic. You know, we can talk about public policy all day long. I can get into the weeds. I, I go back to Washington D.C. almost once a month, and I have what I feel like I've been having the same conversation every single time, which is, you know, us kind of rolling up our sleeves and trying to figure out where the margins. But forget all of it. Okay, if you don't change the dynamic by where people think about what makes modern day life work. Oh, you have yeah. lost the game. There's nothing else to talk about. We have to start with that. So, baseline thing: if people can, so the mining aficionados who are listening to this, for the detractors that are listening to this, I'm going to give you something that I hope gets recycled more than the stuff in the blue can. So, modern day life made possible by three different categories: agricultural products, so things that are grown; mined products which are things that are extracted. And by the way, I've had somebody sat across the lunch table from me and told me that they didn't use mine materials as they were salting their food. So I'll save that for later. Third category, and this is where I, I think you probably kind of your antennas went up and I said there's three. It's mined, M-I-N-D. So this is the product of human ingenuity using base materials from the first two categories, <laughs> all right? And I divide mined materials into two things. Okay. The things that are real and what I call fairy tales. So those are things where people think that they're solving problems through solving them with emotions, through things that aren't proven up, that don't stand on science, that don't yeah. stand on background research, or where the problem is worse than the pro the, the solution is worse than the problem it's solving. So Mine materials, agricultural materials, mine materials. The number one area is we've got to get rid of that fairy tale department. Gotcha. So it's, it's just too it's too important. It's 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 killing us. It's killing us. Well, thank thank for about, uh, standing on that. Um, I guess my my final question to you guys, as we're wrapping up here, is. is Kind of what what lessons would you like us to learn from the cactus mining your experiences? I'm kind of giving you a, a free reign here to go on whatever tangent you'd like. Uh, what would you like to leave us with? <laughs> free license to go on a tangent. Well, all right. So number one thing is um, on the cactus side of things, AML reforms work. They work. You get public policy out of the way. You can solve complex problems. You can address environmental issues, safety hazards. We can help meet our supply chain needs. I mean, there are just so many different areas there. Um, most of the time when we look at new mining projects, we try to understand the economics of it. But typically, the economists will tell you that it's usually a multiplier around three apps. So, um, you know, the amount of, 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 of economic activity of wealth that we're creating in areas that started with an environmental impairment I mean, it's just a no-brainer, man. Like, I, I, I don't know why, I don't know why it hasn't happened now, uh, by now. But I will take any time up the road. Um, I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent. Either way, this is something that we can solve. And cactus proves that it's solvable. <laughs>
love ending with solutions. So Adam Hawkins, thank you so much for being on the Resources Podcast. It's, it's been a pleasure. Thank you, Taylor. Appreciate it.